Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. What we're going to be doing, so every week as we watch through Game, so I did before the episode a mini class um, for the New Orleans people who are here, looking at some sources related to the topic that we're going to be discussing in more detail now. In this case, looking at um, women and tefillin. Again, it was not a major theme of the episode, though there are a number of kind of similar topics that are, you know, looked at women in Kiddush, women in tefillin, you know, there's like that kind of, uh, those kinds of questions come up um, or debates come up a number of times uh, in the episode. So again, so we looked at some sources beforehand and now um, the idea is that we're going to have more of kind of a open discussion um, with myself and, and Rabbi Schatz just sort of exploring the parameters and exploring, I think both halakhically and sociologically, um, this idea of women and tefillin, you know, can women, you know, women are exempt, as we saw in some of the sources, from, from laying tefillin. Does that exemption mean they shouldn't lay tefillin? Can women choose to make themselves obligated? Um, lots of these kinds of topics, which are discussed, I mean, particularly in the conservative world, um, but every once in a while in the Orthodox world as well. Um, so, you know, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next about 40 minutes at this point, um, and, and sort of essentially look, you know, talking through sources, but not, not in like a frontal, sheer kind of manner. Great. I get, the only thing that I'll add to that is that um, just for those of you who don't know either of us, I'll give you a little intro into who we both are. Um, so I'm Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. I work in Los Angeles at Beth Am, um, which is a, conserv- a traditional conservative community in uh, the prominent L.A. area. Uh, many of my congregants are on here now, which is wonderful to see them and wonderful to be joining people in the other LA. Uh, and Rabbi Pernick and I know each other through a fellowship that we did when we were both in rabbinical school. And clearly we are not in the same movement. We don't, we don't belong to the same movement. We don't work in the same movement. Um, and yet we, we constantly are discussing halachic, matter, halachic matters just the two of us to figure things out both for ourselves and also for our communities, because it's always better to talk with a chevrucha than it is to just discuss with people who are potentially always like-minded or more of the time like-minded than you. So this is a forum for you to be able to hear the two of us discuss in real time. We did not discuss this um, for this class beforehand, but to discuss in real time how these halachot, how these pieces of Jewish law play out both personally in our lives and in our movements and also in the sources, uh, which for the most part we read the same way but might interpret in different ways for our communities. So over the course, and this is the first class, which is why I'm giving you this kind of preamble. I won't do this every time, but for each class, what we'll do is we will choose a halachic topic that we can then discuss in front of and with all of you uh, from kind of two different angles and from also a, a friendship where we will lovingly disagree with one another and with one another's movements at times, 
but that will allow you to see the different angles that that the episode and also the Jewish world come at these come at these topics. Um, so Rabbi Parnik is going to start us off, and uh, and I will then chime in. Sure. I mean, I'll just note, um, you know, just just to note that the uh, on our end, on the New Orleans end, this class is being done together with um, the Jewish Community Center, the JCC, and actually. You know, many, probably most of the New Orleans people who are on here are more connected to Sher Chadash, which is the conservative synagogue, than to Beth Israel, which is the Orthodox synagogue. So, um, you know, it's there's a, a lot of, I think, similarities across communities. Though, one thing I'll, I'll note, uh, in the pre-discussion, when we were looking at sources about, you know, women are exempt, Stan asked, you know, okay, women are exempt, but that means, you know, they they could do it. The fact that they're exempt doesn't mean they're not allowed to, you know, instead has, so like how common is it within Orthodox settings for women to, you know, these, these conversations to be discussed and, and women to discuss putting on tefillin. Um, and my response was, you know, I think he asked what percentage of, of women in Orthodox settings do you think lay tefillin regularly? And, and I guessed maybe somewhere between 0.01 and 0.02%. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's my approximate guess. And, and that this isn't something that's really a discussion in most um, Orthodox settings. I know when I was in Israel living in this neighborhood at Pardes, and Pardes is an uh, interdenominational space. Um, so there, there were women in the Orthodox, you know, who would come to the Orthodox minion who laid to fill in. But it's generally in the Orthodox world, um, very uncommon. And I think the, the reasons are probably more so sociological than halachic. Um, we looked a little bit at, at some of the halachic potential issues of women laying tefillin. There's a, a just translation um, into Aramaic in the Targum Yonatan of the verse that says, a woman should not wear a man's clothing and a man should not wear a woman's clothing. And it's translated by the Targum Yonatan saying, you know, a woman shouldn't be wearing tzitzis and tefillin. Um, so those are sort of quintessential men's clothing in the Targum's understanding. And I think that speaks to even back then that there was a sense that these are men's mitzvot. And I would say probably similar to kippah, um, these kinds of clear ritual things that are associated with men, even if women are allowed to do them, there's sort of a, a perhaps a discomfort and certainly it's unusual in most settings. And, um, you know, I'm sort of in the liberal or, you know, fairly farly to the left wing Orthodox sphere. So it wouldn't be particularly, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel so out of place. And I don't think a woman would feel super uncomfortable putting on tefillin on a daily minion at our synagogue at Beth Israel but in most of the Orthodox world, I think that, you know, it would be a, a very uncomfortable situation um, for a woman who came into a woman's section of, and, and laid to fill it. So, so let's, just for, let's just for a second um, lay a few things out here. So there are specific mitzvot that women are exempt from. We're going to talk about that word exempt in a second. Um, but a lot of them are what is considered to be 
positive time-bound mitzvot, which basically translates to something that you would do that would be uh, good to do, uh, as opposed to negative, and that would be at a specific time that it would need to happen, right? We don't late fill in at night, so it's time-bound because you would be doing it in the morning. It also has specific days that you would not be wearing it. So it's specific to a time. And women are exempt from those kinds of mitzvot. So when you think about what those kinds of mitzvot could be, you would think of things like the Shema or Tfilin. Talit doesn't really go in that category, but we could talk about that at another time. But things that, that women are obligated to have no time associated with them or have multiple times associated with them, right? So reciting the Amidah, for example, the, the kind of quintessential main part of our prayer service, putting up a mezuzah in your home, and also saying Birkat HaMazot. Now, there's, those are just three things, the grace after meal. Sorry, I didn't translate that. That those are just three things, but you could probably think of many things that we do ritually and traditionally that are not specific to time. So let's let's just for a moment talk about this word exempt. Um, there are many sources, and I don't actually know which sources um, Rabbi Pernick shared with you. So I'm sorry if this is uh, if this is redundant. But there's a place in the Gemara that talks about two women who actually wore tefillin. Um, one was Michal, and one was the wife of, of Yona. And we don't have to get into who these people were or why we don't know much about them. But the wife of Yona would, would somehow associate herself with the Shalosh Regalim, with the pilgrimage holidays, in a, in a way that would not be... Um, obligated for a woman to do because again it's time bound and Michal was wearing tefillin so exempt in this way we clearly see that exempt is not that these people were not allowed to but that they didn't have to because if something was done during a specific time back in those days women might actually not be available to do them and so they were exempt from them Bonnie has a question, so I'm going to answer her question. <clears throat> when you light candles, that's time-bound. Okay, great. So there are certain things that we could imagine being associated with women and the mitzvah that women are supposed to do that also have times now, oh, Bonnie, you went away, that have times associated with them um, and that they are not only not exempt from, but it's actually their mitzvah. It's actually a woman's mitzvah. So when we talk about exemption for tefillin, as Rod Pernick just mentioned, it seems to be a little bit more sociological and cultural than it does based on halakha and based on what the rabbis actually wanted from their, um, from their congregations, from, from the women in their communities. So... I'm going to say one more thing, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Rod Pernick, so this isn't, this isn't a rant. Um, in our community, I would say that most women do not wear tefillin, right? And as I mentioned before, it's a conservative community. Most women, however, don't wear tefillin. So you might be asking why, if in a liberal 
uh, egalitarian setting, women aren't wearing tefillin because there is still this cultural, sociological aspect to it being seen as extremely male-oriented, something that daughters saw their fathers wear, not their mothers. So one of the pieces that we'll get into in a moment is at what point does the halakha that we practice become a reflection of sociological norms and our own uh, like our own our own self-consciousness rather than actual halakha, actual law around whether or not you can wear tefillin. And in the series, it seems as though the guy whose name I don't remember because he's in the episode for like five seconds, but he seems to be uncomfortable not for halachic reasons, because he can't give an answer as to why he doesn't want to use women's to fill in. He just keeps saying, I can't do it. I can't wear it because it was owned by a woman. So we'll get into a little bit more of like where that breaks down. Um, but I want to give Rai Parnik a chance to get a word in edgewise. Sure. I just, you know, thinking about that particular point you're making, um, the, the most contemporary of the sources we looked at, the Panine Halacha, which is a very contemporary source, which talked to, I, we used your sources, I, you know, so, um, but basically talking about how, you know, a woman who wants to wear tefillin can, but she, do, she should do so in the privacy of her home. Um, and, right, that idea of like, yeah, it's right, halakhically it's fine, but you would be looked at funny for doing so. Right. Um, and, I mean, not just with tefillin, but I, I remember the Israel trip that Rabbi Schatz and I were on together, along with Rabbi Lexi from Gates of Prayer. There's a, um, for New Orleans people, so we had our, our whole group, but there was another reform rabbi, a rabbinical student who was on that trip, um, and it was a Shabbos, so tefillin wasn't part of the equation, but I remember there was, um, I really wanted to go to the synagogue that I liked when I was in Jerusalem, and this other reform rabbinical student, you know, was tagging along with me and a few other people who were going there, but she asked about whether she would feel uncomfortable going there with a talit. Um, to which I responded, like, I really don't know, because I've never been a woman trying to put a talit on there. Um, and so I think there are, there are those things where the, um, you know, is it problematic for a woman to wear a talit? No, but might you feel uncomfortable and feel like, you know, eyes are on you in certain spaces for doing so. And again, even potentially some liberal spaces. This is a, um, you know, a modern Orthodox kind of synagogue that I went to, but in an Israeli milieu where it's very uncommon. And even, right, the the one character who, who lays to fill it is clearly American, right? There's the sense, we were talking about how there's sort of like that stock character, but it's like, clearly this is a stock American character who's laying to fill in because like Israeli woman... The, the assumption seems to be like Israeli women wouldn't be doing this, you know, with, you know, exceptions, but in general, that would be the case. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I also think, and people should feel like Bonnie did, people should feel free to like raise your hand and chime in. We, we could talk about this for hours, but we'd also love to hear your, your comments. Um, I think the other, the other piece is that in, in terms of, how it feels to the woman to wear it. Um, there are so many pieces in our tradition that talk about how 
you can do it in, as Josh has mentioned, you can do it in private or do it without a blessing because it's not actually your mitzvah. So go ahead and do it. That's so lovely. But just don't do it with a blessing because it has, it's not yours. So you shouldn't do it with a blessing. Um, the other, the other association is that if you're going to do it, only do it in the spaces that you would be kind of seen as as equal, right? If you're going into a modern Orthodox setting in Israel to where we're talking about Shulin, so I'll just use that as the example. I don't know what Shul you're speaking of, but if you were to wear any of those garments, even if the people around you were comfortable with the concept, you would be the only one doing it. And so unlike a man for whom if they are not wearing a talit, that that would be seen as, in some, in some cases, that would be seen as they're doing the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing, and then they stick out. And so women in that kind of setting stick out, and that's why many women don't necessarily want to take it on, because it feels like you are setting yourselves apart from, from the rest of the community. I see Renee has a question. So... In respect to what you were saying with the tallis, it's it also depends, I think, on what um, community or sector even that you are coming from, because there are communities that feel that a, a guy doesn't need to wear a tallis until he gets married. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Or a woman covering her hair, for instance. I mean, I, I wear a hat when I go to shul. I don't wear a kippah. I wear a hat. And I didn't wear a hat prior to getting married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so many of these things. We even, we were talking at the outset about, um, Judy asked about, you know, if I could talk about why it's, the show is called Surugim. We talked about Surugim, right? The, the kippah that I wear is a kippah suruga, knitted kippah, right? And there's all kinds of hashkafic, like uh, connotations, what, connotations of where you fit along the spectrum from non-Orthodox to modern Orthodox to yeshivish to Haredi based on what you know, what your keeper looks like. Um, so there's, there's all these things. And I, I actually remember when I, when I used to live in Charleston, South Carolina, my, my rabbi there talked about how in his first rabbinic interview, they asked him what kind of keeper he wore. And <laughs> he said, said that if you're going to make assumptions about me based on what kind of keeper I wear, I'm probably not the right, you know, rabbi for this congregation. And he's, you know, I would say yeshivish, and he wears a black velvet kippah, and he's, he is sort of a, to some extent, a black velvet kippah kind of guy, but that idea of sort of judging was seen negatively, as it often is, and yet it can be helpful because it, there's a sense, it, it can also be hurtful, but it provides that sense of, you know, you sort of understand, oh, if I want to show I belong in... Um, in this setting, I know how to dress. One of my classmates in rabbinical school uh, decided to get trained as a moil. Uh, and the only places that would, you know, the only people he could find who would train him were Haredi. And so every once in a while, he would come to Yeshiva, you know, wearing a, a white shirt, black pants, you know, unbuttoned top with a suit jacket. And he had his black hat that he, you know, he would wear because, you know, you want to, to some extent, you want to fit in when you go to those places. You don't want to stand out. Um, so that's definitely, definitely a, a real thing. I'm one of, I'd like to go back to, uh, 
you know, the percent of uh, women that might wear tefillin, you, you, is that what you said, 0.1, Very. I was totally estimating based on... Right, no, right, very low. But on the other hand, if you talk about the uh, um, women or even men um, in the conservative or reform movement who wear, put on tefillin, it's, especially in the reform movement, is very low. And in the conservative, I'd say it's certainly not more than 50%. Maybe it's down around 25%. I'm just guessing. Um, and, and so uh, the number of women, and yet women, especially in, in, in the U.S., uh, look at um, um, observance in a much more egalitarian way. Although we saw evidence of, the, of some, a lot of egalitarianism in through game, I think. You know, like, you know, the right to uh, uh, say the uh, kiddish. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as uh, putting on the fill-in, it's a, I, you know, I, I wasn't brought up putting on the fill-in, although I did it occasionally. So I, a lot of American uh, males, young males or women, may not have been encouraged, un, unlike in the Orthodox community. So what do you think? Yeah. Rabbi Shatz, I feel like um, we'll leave this. One. Yeah, I mean, asking specifically about in the conservative world, um, the sense of, obligation, you know, normalizing, it, does it, you know, how does it fit um, in your sense from being in different synagogues and such? Um, I mean, in Sher Chadash, people can, I mean, Robert goes to Sher Chadash, but others can weigh in because I, I don't know what it's like at Sher Chadash as well, if that's sort of an ex- expectation or unusual. I think I stand around 20, 25%. So I, um, Janet asked a question that I want to answer, and then we can actually go into the next piece, um, which will talk a little bit more about conservative Judaism and and where we stand on Talit and Tefillin. I think you're right, Robert, that that there are still many people within the conservative movement who do not wear Talit or Tefillin. I think that um, there are definitely many, many, many more men who take on that mitzvah than there are women. But the piece that I'm actually going to share with you is a piece that was put out by the conservative movement that talks about how if women are going to consider themselves observant Jews in the conservative movement, they have to, by egalitarian standards, take on all of the mitzvot that are not specific to men, right? There are specific meets vote that women can't do because of their biology or because of, you know, the bodies that we have that are different than a man's body. But the meets vote that could work for either, for either gender, um, women are supposed to take them on just as equally. So I just gave you a little bit of a teaser to the end of the text that I'm going to bring in a second. But um, I want to answer Janet's question. Janet asked, um, is there any association between wearing tefillin and, um, I think she means nida, the idea of taharat hamishpacha, and there is. Um, so for those of us who might not be as, uh, as familiar with what taharat hamishpacha is, there is this idea of nida, that, that a woman during her period and after, um, for a certain number of days, a whole other discussion for a whole other time that I am happy to have with anybody, um, that a woman is in a certain state of, I hate this word, but it's a translation, purity, where she is not supposed to touch certain things or do certain things that might, uh, that might make others not uh, pure, to change their status of purity. 
again, purity is a terrible word for this, but without understanding Hebrew, it's hard to use another, another term. Um, so there is the idea that women, one of the, one of the reasons that women wouldn't wear tefillin is because they didn't know how to take care of their bodies. Remember, this is not being written in 2020. They didn't know how to take care of the bo their bodies in such a way that they would have a goof naki, that they would have a clean body, which is what any male also has to have when wearing tefillin, right? Men cannot wear tefillin into the bathroom. Men, if they're having stomach issues, are not supposed to be wearing tefillin, and that goes along the same lines um, as for women. But because of the um, because of the case that Nida was this time when women might not know how to control uh, the the fact that they were bleeding, that would be a time that they shouldn't be wearing tefillin, and so then they just shouldn't wear tefillin at all. Because what if all of a sudden you know their body decides that they're going to be in Nida without them knowing, and now they have tefillin on? And God strikes us with lightning. So that's that's kind of what the what the rabbis believed when they were putting that piece of halacha together. Um, I am going to share my screen for one second. I know we told you this wasn't going to be a source sheet text um, study, but this next text is long, and so I want to share it with you so that I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to share it with you. So in the conservative movement, we have thing called, things called shuvot, shuvot or responsa, where we take Jewish law and we define it and we discuss it in ways of using halachic text to be able to make decisions based on the years that we are living in rather than the years that it was written. So this is one of the many ways that the conservative and the orthodox movement differ, um, that some of the understandings that we have of halakha come from these chuvot and not from the main source of halakha itself. So the question that was asked by Rabbi, Rabbi Pamela Barmash in 2014, right, not so long ago, was the question of, are Jewish women responsible for observing the mitzvot from which they have traditionally been exempt? So these mitzvot that they are not obligated to, nor that they are being told they can't do, are they, are they um, responsible for observing them? Now, again, I'm not going to read this whole thing, though I'm going to keep it on the screen if you would like to read it. These are just excerpts, uh, and I'm happy to send you the actual tshuva if you would like to read it. It's very, 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 very long. So um, I didn't want to read the whole thing tonight, or we'd be here for hours. But the end... Um, the end, the, the tshuva, the answer that, that she comes up with based on these halachic sources is here. The halacha has recognized that when social customs change significantly, the new social reality requires a reappraisal of halachic practices. The historical circumstances in which women were exempt from time-bound positive mitzvot are no longer operative, and the conservative movement has for almost a century moved towards greater and greater inclusion of women in mitzvot. In Jewish thought and practice, the highest rank and esteem is for those who are required to fulfill mitzvot. We rule, so this is the end result of this tshuva, we rule, therefore, that women and men are equally obligated to observe the mitzvot. We call upon conservative synagogues, schools, and camps to educate men and women in equal observance of mitzvot and to expect and require their equal observance of mitzvot. Um, 
that's a very, very strong statement and one that if you belong to a conservative community, you know is also not enacted, right? That we're not, we're not requiring that all women wear fill-in or all women wear tali tote. It's, it's possible in your community that when you approach the Torah, you have to wear a talit and kippah. Um, or a head covering of some sort, but it's not the case that you have to do those things every single day. So I'm going to let Rabbi Pernick jump in, and then I'll share a little bit about how I personally see this uh, in my own life and in our community, uh, and then we'll open up for questions. Sure. So I, I wanted to bring up one thing that Lisa noted. So so Lisa um, asked about the Nita piece for one. Did the guy mention Nita that the uh, the guy who didn't want to put on to okay i don't remember uh, no I no 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 he didn't mention it no, okay, this is so. janet no 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 that is, it's just a question i brought up because i thought oh sorry janet. the main reason yeah no okay. no it was not mentioned in the, in the okay call. yeah no because I, I was lisa also messaged me about that so that's okay so that is a, i mean certainly a you know a good question and the other thing that lisa pointed out um for those who are, who are you know, reading carefully or listening carefully is that the guy made a sort of a, not sort of, made a homophobic, homophobic comments, right? He said, you know, I'm not going to take Tefillin from this reform lesbian. That was what he said. Um, and I think that really speaks to the stigma attack, right, associated with um, Tefillin in that context, Right, that it's not just like, oh, this is something that some women do and some women don't do. It's sort of like he immediately projects all of this, this whole identity upon her. He assumes she's reformed, as Rabbi Schatz mentioned, you know, or not Rabbi Schatz, someone mentioned that, you know, the um, very few reformed Jews laid to fill in uh, as someone who grew up reformed. Um, it's very uncommon in a reform context to, to lay to fill in, um, but also sort of the assumption of her sexual orientation based on her language mm-hmm. fill in, um, is notable that, you know, just from a five second interaction, he's sort of thrown all of this on her. And I think that speaks to kind of this stigma that's attached to it. That it's not just people will think you're unusual. People are going to assume all kinds of things about you if you're someone who's publicly laying to fill in. Um, there was another point I, I wanted to mention. This kind of came up earlier that I thought about this. Uh, a rabbi who's the, a rabbi of a yeshiva and also a modern Orthodox community in Efrat um, came to my rabbinical school one time when he was in the States. And he talked about how within their community, they spoke, there was a discussion about women saying mourners Kaddish if there were no men. So if, right, if there were only women more, sorry, no men who were saying Kaddish. So if there was a minion of men, but none of those men were saying Kaddish and there was a, women's, a woman or more than one woman saying Kaddish, um, whether a man should be saying Kaddish alongside these women or whether, you know, the women themselves should say mourners Kaddish, um, which is a, an example of something that's completely not at all a halachic question. It's not, a, you know, there's no Jewish law related to um, whether a woman can say mourner's Scottish. Mourner's Scottish itself is not really bound by Jewish law because it's, it's a very late addition to our practice. Um, but he spoke about how they said they would sort of do a trial of, you know, for about six months and then, and then reassess. Actually, I, I think if I remember correctly, it was, at, it was about women saying it aloud first 
And then it was going to be if women, only women would say it loud. And there was um, enough negative feedback from both women and men about women saying the mourner's cottage aloud, you know, because typically before that, women would sort of say it quietly while men were the ones really leading it. Um, And this person, this rabbi was saying that, you know, he sort of left it up to his community, which is again, sort of modern Orthodox community in Efrat to decide and they basically decided and said, yeah, you know what, we think we should go back to the way we did it before with only men saying this. Purely sociological and, and comfort level. It's not at all a halakha conversation, but there was a sense of, yeah, we don't like this. This felt weird, um, so we're not going to do it. Right, which is just, it's, I mean, it's a prime example of then a child who grows up in that community thinks that only men can say Kaddish, and then they grow up and, and they decide, well, I can't say Kaddish because my mom wasn't allowed to say Kaddish, so I'm not allowed to say Kaddish. Right. And it's just none of that is factual. Right. Um, I, I, I will say that, uh, that even, even with the conservative movement putting out this chuba, that I myself, as a conservative rabbi, find tefillin to be very different than talit and find it to be very, much more difficult um, and I think that it is purely sociological because I grew up going to Jewish day school where boys got detention if they forgot their tefillin, and I was never even asked if I cared to put it on. So it, it was never, in my mind, it was never a girl's mitzvah. It was never a female mitzvah to do to begin with. And so you know, later in life, even if I was in my early 20s, to be told that in rabbinical school I was going to have to at least to tr- try to wear tefillin was very difficult because it's not a mitzvah that I was connected to. And I hear the conservative movement's point in terms of egalitarianism. If I want to be a rabbi and I want to stand in front of my community and say, I have authority just like the senior rabbi who's a male has authority then I too should take on these mitzvot that he has to take on because he's a man. And yet I will say, and I, I'm a little bit scared to say this, but I'll say it anyway. I have not put on tefillin one day during this pandemic because it's something that I put on in our community daily minion because I need to be an example. But when I'm home alone, it's not something that I feel pulled to do. And I, I don't think I'm the only one who feels this way about tefillin. I, I might be the only one who's telling you that I feel this way about tefillin. But I, I don't think that it's a secret, that it is something that is difficult for women to take on. Even if we were to come out and say, it's allowed, you can do it, here you go, try it on. Um, so I just wanted to add that to the conversation that even if something is allowed and even if something is, you're very welcome, Heather. Um, even if something is allowed and even if something is, is permissible, that doesn't mean that it's comfortable. And so we have to create societies and cultures around making it comfortable, which is why I, I, uh, added my comment here of it's lovely that women, that girls were given fill in, but how many of them still wear it or choose to choose to put it on? Um, yeah. So I I personally would love to hear what people have to say about fill in, whether or not you wear it or how you feel as a congregant, a person about this topic. 
Um, I think it's a really challenging topic that seems on the surface to be super simple and actually there's nothing about it that is simple. Uh, and, it's, and it's a real struggle both internally and communally. I think uh, actually in Israel, it's actually more of a challenge because there's so few female rabbis. And in, in the conservative movement, I know of one particular one that uh, Shekharash visited in Jerusalem, uh, Chayaroa Rowan Baker. Um, and she, she's a rabbi, uh, daughter of an um, American and an Israeli uh, um, couple. Anyway, she, she's uh, been in the news a lot and also uh, promoting egalitarianism in Israel. But it's very challenging. On the other hand, people like her are a new model for uh, egalitarianism in Israel and potentially even to put on tefillin. I don't know if she does or not. But um, she's really an amazing uh, conservative rabbi, Masorti rabbi. That's great. That's great. I think that that goes back to Rabbi Pernick's point, which is that um, especially in Israel, I think there's a lot of stigma around your sexuality, your denomination, anything if you take on these mitzvot, because there is a culture that if you take on those mitzvot, you don't know any better, as opposed to I'm taking on these mitzvot because actually not only am I allowed to, but there are people who say that I should because I'm taking on mitzvot. And this is a mitzvah that in the 21st century, I know how to take on and I respectfully can take on. Other thoughts, comments, counter sermons? Renee? I think um, like what you guys were talking about earlier in terms of what you are exposed to versus upbringing. You know, I, I grew up at Temple Betham when I as a kid growing up there, there was a lot, it was a lot less egalitarian, I guess, than it is now. But because also, because my, in my family, my family, my parents are European, they, they didn't believe in some of those changes that ended up happening along the lines with Temple Betham. So when my, when I was bat mitzvah, I certainly didn't wear anything. And when my daughter was bat mitzvah, her class of girls were already, uh, many of them were wearing talesim, and many of them were wearing kipot, but she did not feel comfortable doing that. Even though she was exposed to it in terms of the shul and her class, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that she, was, she felt comfortable with within our family. Mm-hmm. And so she wore a head covering when she went up, mm-hmm. but she didn't wear a kippah or a talis. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of, many of my congregants know I also don't wear a head covering, um, I, when I get married, I will, but I do not wear a head covering, um, on the Bima. W- one of the things that I've often said is that if a girl is coming up to the Bima as a bat mitzvah and she is being told by our community that she has to wear a head covering, I will cover my head because I want to be an example for her and I want her to feel comfortable. But it, it is also the case that, that similar to Tfilin that wearing a head covering, again, I'm just speaking vulnerably for myself, um, that that is not something that I, that I have taken on unless it makes someone uncomfortable that I'm not wearing it, uh, in which case I will wear it and, and happily um, and, not, and not put up a fight of any kind. Uh, the Freedmans have their hand, and then I think, Charles, you might want to speak because you're unmuted, so we'll call on you next. Uh, Rebecca okay. or Leonard? Hi. Um... You know, we belong to Temple Betham Conservative Synagogue. Our daughter went to school there for elementary school and middle school. 
And then she went to a modern Orthodox high school for high school. And about a third of the kids in the in that school were conservative and the rest were from Orthodox backgrounds. <coughs> uh, what I discovered was that the kids who grew up with a conservative background, the girls who grew up with a conservative background, seemed to be more religious and, you know, more more wanting to do things like go to services or whatever, whereas the the girls who grew up Orthodox are like, well, I don't want to go there. I'm I'm not required. I'm not going. And so it was kind of interesting that the in, in a sense, the conservative uh, girls were more religious, uh, so to speak, than the um, not, than the uh, orthodox ones. And then just as an aside, I just wanted to point out to Rabbi Pernick that our daughter is a student at Tulane now. And, and she, joined us for the Chagim. She yes. was there for, right, for, for Yom Kippur. For Yom Kippur, yes. Right. yes. Yeah, she felt very her. welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. It was great to have her. Um, really great to have her with us for, the, for Yom Kippur. And I think that point that you're raising is a really interesting one about sort of empowerment um, that for girls raised in conservative settings, perhaps who are being raised sort of with a sense of total um, egalitarianism and and sort of equality, that there is, I guess, a higher level of um, empowerment over their own religious journey Whereas within, you know, those being raised Orthodox often, even when I worked um, for a couple of summers at Camp Yavne in New Hampshire, which is a pluralistic summer camp. And I was, you know, one of the people in charge of the Mechitza minion. It's not, you know, they don't have Orthodox and, you know, non-Orthodox, they have Mechitza and the non-Mechitza minion. And most of the girls who came to the Mechitza minion didn't come because they were necessarily Orthodox coming from Orthodox families. It was because they knew that they wouldn't be called on to lead anything, <laughs> right? That they could sort of sit in the back and, you know, they, they uh, maybe would be asked to open an arc or something, but they wouldn't be like really put on the spot the way they would in the egalitarian minion. So there is something real there. I was also thinking about, um, I remember one time I gave at a minion that um, at, at my rabbinical school, which has, my rabbinical school, Yeshivat Hove Torah, which is for men, and Yeshivat Maharat, which is the sister school for women in the same building. And the Minyan sort of has people from both contexts. And one time I was just like asked to speak after Minyan, and I talked about, it was like around Pesach time, and I talked um, about my connection in a way I love the verses that we say when we put on tefillin, um, and the way it sort of sets us in the mindset for, for the day. And we're talking about, um, you know, Yitziat Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, and it's sort of humbling ourselves to start the day. And if a few women came up to me afterwards, they're like, oh, that's interesting. I had no idea we said those things because we don't put on tefillin, right? So there's like liturgically as well, there's, I think those aspects of Jewish liturgy, which were put in place in a very intentional way to sort of structure our days. Um, the Yerkoda Shachar is, you know, establishing kind of having gratitude and the tefillin, um, one of the first things we say in the day is a, a, a remembrance of leaving Egypt. And the women are like, oh, well, you don't say that. And so it's almost like you're missing out on something that the framers of tefillah saw as an integral part of the getting into the day process is sort of lost by half of the con- you know, congregation who is not laying tefillin, um, plus those who put on tefillin and don't say all those verses. Um, but I, it was just like really jumped out to me at that moment um, that this is like something I connect with that you just, you don't have, you miss out. I, I was also going to say in terms of uh, 
mitzvah age girls, you know, kind of learning about the opportunities they have. In the case of the talus, you know, at our congregation, a girl wearing a talus, either purchasing one or making one and, you know, seeing her friends and, you know, what, what they decide about designs and things, that's all mm -hmm. part of what's encouraged, right, for, for um, bat mitzvah age girls. Whereas for the tefillin, I don't know how it is now, but I know um, uh, when my daughter was at that age, the only opportunity was really at Camp Ramah, where yeah. they had somebody come and do a class and make tefillin, but it was um, only a few people could really get the class. It was kind of as hard to get as the cooking class. <laughs> it was, so it was very limited and, and kind of hit or miss. And if you got in the class, you know, you could make a set of tefillin either for yourself or, or a relative, I believe. Yeah. But very few got to do that. So I don't know if there are are as many opportunities. So yeah, it's a, it's kind of a more esoteric kind of endeavor for a girl to pursue. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to call on Charles because he wants to say something. The, the one sentence I will say about what you just said is that Cantor Chorney, who's a female, for those of you who don't, who don't know, Cantor Chorney and I try very hard with specifically bat mitzvah students to make sure that on the Thursday before their bat mitzvah that they see us in tefillin and that if they want to wear it that day, they can, um, which is always fine with me because I'm happy to give them my tefillin to wear for the day. Um, but that allows them to at least feel if they're not going to wear it, for them to at least feel like in that moment they know what it would be like to take on this mitzvah at a time when they are, by the conservative movement standards, now obligated to take it on. So I 100% agree with you. And the interesting thing is that an Orthodox man comes to teach that class at Ramah and allows women and, and boys and girls, they're not women and men, boys and girls to make tefillin and then puts them on them, has them say the blessing and asks them to wear them for the rest of the summer. So that really shows that it's sociological and not halakhic. Okay, Charles, you get the last word. I'm sorry for talking. Oh for my gosh, the last word. This is quite a uh, <laughs> responsibility. Um, I'd like to just broaden this to titi and talises. Uh, when I, uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, talis is a, is a way to carry titi. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, titi are not worn by women, and they're worn by many Orthodox men, and yet uh, there's a parallel between that and the tefillin, I, I think. And that why, and when I grew up, as I said, no women wore taluses, but now many women do. So that, at least in the conservative movement, is promoted and allowed, uh, whereas uh, the tefillin, there seems to be reticence to do that. And I just would like your opinion as to why. I'm happy to give you my opinion, and then Rabbi Parnick can have the last word. Um, my opinion is that Tali tote can be made feminine. And so... It, and kippur. And, yeah, but he asked me about tali tote. So I know, I'm just add kippur also. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, that you can make them lacy and different colors, and you can make it into something that the girl feels like she is connected to. Tfilin does have halakhic standards, you know, that go along with the actual item itself. And one of them is that it has to be a certain color, it has to look a certain way, and has to be made out of a certain material. And so 
it is very hard to make that not look the way that your dad's did or your grandfather's did, whereas your talit can be a beautiful, you know, uh, tablecloth that was passed down from Russia that is all lace that is now yours at your bat mitzvah. And I can speak for myself that the first talit I ever wore regularly was a talit that I made to be something that I was comfortable in. Phil and I don't have that option with. So I think that's the reason. Um, I also think that it's different to put something on as a shawl as a woman. I think it's different to put something on as a shawl than it is to wrap yourself in leather that doesn't really fit because your muscles work differently than a man's muscles um, and so on. I think and your hair. You take a shower. Oh, man, I could teach a whole class on how your hair has to be done for filling and my shirt has to be able to go above my elbow. It's terrible. It's just, it's very hard. Okay, Rabbi Pernick. <laughs> no, that was, that was the, you know, I was going to talk about the, you know, just the, the pragmatic piece. I mean, you brought a lot of those things in. And I think, right, that idea of filling, if, if there was that same flexibility for filling to be, you know, make it whatever color and whatever material. I remember a rabbi of mine teaching a, a class about, you know, the reasons filling are black is because if we said that they can be anything else, then people, it would be a way, like sort of a one-upsmanship. Everyone would be trying to show they have the best to fill in, like the way with an etro, you know, there's this whole like getting like the fanciest. And the, so, um, which even though tefillin are, are so standardized, if you still ever go to buy tefillin, there's like, 15 different options of like the most kosher and the, right there's like so it still exists to some extent um but yeah but i think that practical piece also um is a big one i remember when i was at pardes in jerusalem and like that was often a complaint for women who laid tefillin is that their tefillin would get destroyed very quickly because they showered before coming in the morning and you know when you when you have wet hair and you put on your tefillin they they very quickly start to uh, warp. So it also happens for boys, it's not, but it happens more often for women. So next time we will pick something from episode two. So we hope that you will all continue with us. Really lovely doing this with all of you and glad to be able to learn with you and we will see you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.